Good morning. This morning, I would like to do a little study on a topic rather than a passage. And I've been thinking about, and I've heard some messages too on both tape and on the radio, about the crowns that we will perhaps receive from our Lord. And so I did a little study, I'm doing a little study on, on crowns in the Bible, uh, from their very first appearance to their very last appearance in the Bible. Does anyone know where the first re- reference to a crown in the Bible is? Hmm. What's that? No. First Samuel would be a good guess. That's when the king started. What did you say? Oh, you were right the first time. Exodus. Exodus. The first mention of a crown in scriptures in Exodus 39. But wait a minute. There's no, there's no kings, are there, in Exodus? First mention of a crown in Exodus 39. It is part of the high priest's mitre. Exodus 39, beginning in verse 27, it says, And they made coats of fine linen of woven work for Aaron and for his sons, and a mitre of fine linen, and goodly bonnets of fine linen, and linen breeches of fine twined linen, and a girdle of fine twined linen and blue and purple, and scarlet of needlework as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 30 of chapter 39 says, And they made a plate of the holy crown of pure gold, and wrote upon it a writing like to the engravings of a signet, holiness to the Lord. That's the first mention of a crown in scripture. It is mentioned several other times in the books of the law in reference to the same exact thing. In another reference, it says that the crown was not a part of the mitre, but you know, a mitre, you look at the Pope's hat, that's supposed to look like a mitre. The crown was slipped on over the mitre and it said it was worn high on the mitre, not down here, but it was high on the mitre is what it says in Leviticus, that the crown of gold was worn high on the mitre, and there, engraved in it, holiness to the Lord. This, the first example of a crown in the Bible, uh, gives us pause to look at the purpose of that crown. Obviously, it was not to uh, name the high priest as the king of Israel, was it? Everything about his raiment from head to toe spoke of holiness to the Lord. Sanctification being set apart. Each color, the ephod, the breastplate, everything about the garb of the high priest pointed to the Lord. And, and we, that know, we that live in this age know that it pointed to the high priest that is to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that crown, holiness to the Lord, was to set apart the office of priest, not the person, not the person of Aaron, but the office of the priest, that it was consecrated. So here, in the first, the first reference to crown in the Bible, the crown is a picture, not of coronation, but of consecration. That priest was consecrated to the work of the Lord on, on the behalf of the people. So, the first mention and it is of consecration. We know that the, we don't hear about David receiving a crown. 
Uh, we don't hear about, I'm sorry, Saul was the first king. He had the crown. And we don't hear about uh, much about his coronation. However, we do know this about the crown of Saul, which was passed on to David. That that crown, do you remember how it was delivered to David the first time? You remember that story? How the Amalekite, the stranger, brought the crown and the bracelet of Saul to David and gave it to David and said, Saul is dead. And David said, how did you come upon these? He said, well, and you know the story, Saul was mortally wounded and didn't want to be taken by his enemies. So he commanded the Amalekite to slay him. He fell on his sword, but the Amalekite stood over him and he slew him. It says, and then he took the crown from his head and the bracelet from his, from his wrist. And he probably thought he had done nothing wrong. And he brought it to David. And David said, how did you come upon these? And he related the story. And David said, what were you thinking that you could destroy the anointed of the Lord? And he called Saul the anointed of the Lord. And that crown was a symbol not of a man of power, not of a, a general, but of the anointed of the Lord. Another example how a crown is a symbol of consecration. And the kings of Israel, despite the fact that God had a, a, a way for them to live, they chose the kingship. God blessed them and that he set up a king in David as an example to follow, that he was consecrated to the Lord. The scripture tells us that David, his heart was holy God's. He was the man after God's own heart. He was the apple of God's eye. And that was the example. Was he without sin? Absolutely not. He sinned, he sinned grievously. But he was beloved of the Lord and he was consecrated of the Lord to serve him as king over the people. So in the scriptures we see crowns as a symbol of consecration. Also in, in scriptures, the, the, the same uh, Hebrew word is used for the crown on the mitre as it is for the crown that the kings of Israel wore. And I guess it's pronounced nezer. And it was a crown uh, instituted by God, consecrated for the work of God. Now obviously there are other crowns in the scripture. We read about foreign kings and their crowns as well. And, and, but the word nezer is never used for that. It only, is it only used for... Hebrew kings and priests, the crowns of the kings and priests. There's other words, the Atara and the Kethar. These are the crowns of the foreign kings. We read the story of how, how Joab went down and he defeated the Ammonites. And then he sent a messenger back before he went into the city and conquered the city. He says, send and get David, lest the people say that I am the conquering general, that I you know, should get the praise. So David did. He came out and he took the city. And he said he took the, the crown of King Malcolm and he set it on his own head. And of course he destroyed all the cities of the Ammonites and conquered. But that, that crown was not a Nezer. It was a Kethar. In Esther we read of the crowns of the Persian kings, Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes. And these are also the... Uh, the Kethar crowns, the crowns of coronation, uh, not bestowed by God, but bestowed upon man and a symbol that they have been crowned. There are other crowns in the scriptures that we read about. There are crowns of exaltation. And they may not go to a king or to a priest, but they're crowns of exaltation. If, if you were to win a race in the days 
of Paul in one of the Roman arenas, you would get a laurel wreath. But it was a crown. It was a circlet of laurel. And it was, well, we know from scripture, if not, if not just from history, how coveted these laurel crowns, these laurel wreaths were. That, that men would dedicate their lives in training. And of course, the Apostle Paul relates that to how we should, how we should train, how we should dedicate ourselves as well. But that laurel wreath, something that would fade, something that would wither, I don't know, maybe they could press it between two heavy volumes of a book and dry it that way and keep it and hang it on the wall. But you know, that thing was going to corrupt. That thing was gonna, wasn't going to last. The crown given Solomon by his mother. There are, there are metaphorical crowns of exaltation throughout the Bible. You know, uh, Proverbs says that, uh, what is the crown of age? What is the crown of old age? It's your gray hair. <laughs> it can also be your children and your grandchildren is, the, is your crown of glory. So there are these metaphorical crowns. These, these can go in by, by three names throughout scriptures. The atara, which is similar to a, a, a gold crown that a king might wear. But there are two other names for crowns in the scriptures as well. There is the stephanos. The name Stephen means crown. It's my middle name. It's Andrew's middle name. Uh, Stephanos literally means a crown. And then there's diadem or diadema. And that also is, is a uh, Latin name for a crown. Stephanos is Greek. Diadema is Latin. And these are names given for crowns. And they can be used in metaphorical terms as well. You know, They don't have to refer to an actual crown of either laurel wreath or, or olive or, or a precious metal. Uh, we read about the crown of beauty bestowed to Jerusalem in Ezekiel. That's a metaphorical crown. It's not a physical crown that we could handle. The diadem removed from the kings of Israel in Ezekiel as well. How that the Lord will re remove the diadem from the kings of Israel. Uh, there are also the crowns given. Uh, I forgot which king it was. Uh, but it brought a curse to Israel. He invited the emissaries from the east and exalted them and gave them crowns of exaltation against the will of the Lord. So there are various crowns of exaltation from the winners of races and, and contests uh, through those given to people that have uh, earned fame in one way or another. <coughs> Now, the term Stephanos is also the term that we read in the book of the Revelation. When we read about the crowns that the Lord, that the Lord wears when he returns in power. When you read about the rider on the white horse, whose name is Faithful and True, and on his thigh are, is written, Holiness. Um, in Revelation, we read about these, the conquering rider on the white horse. Uh, you think of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, you know, the white, the red, the gray, and the black horses that come and bring judgment upon the, wor on the, upon the world. Of the four horsemen, only the first one, the white one, is given a crown, and he was given the power to conquer. 
The one who sat upon the cloud and had his head, had on his head a golden crown. We read about the woman that is, uh, that brings forth the son. Not the harlot, but the, the good woman that brings forth the son. Uh, the woman is clothed with the sun and the moon at her feet and had a crown of 12 stars. We read about that in Revelation chapter 12. In Hebrews 2.9 it says, But we see Jesus crowned Stephanos with glory and honor. And of course that the great, uh, and let's look at that. It'll be the final mention of crowns in the Bible, Revelation chapter 19. A very moving portion of scripture, Revelation 19. Uh, verse 11 says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, righteousness he, doth, he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his, and his name is called the Word of God. And so on. That's the final mention of crowns in the Bible. And fittingly, it is our Lord that is the one that wears many crowns. He had on his head many crowns. So that's the final reference to it. So we've seen that there are crowns of exaltation. There are, I'm sorry, consecration. There are... uh, crowns of exaltation, there are crowns of coronation. We know that kings are crowned uh, in a way uh, uh, in that they're, uh, you know, they're coronation, and we see that even today. But fourthly, and finally, are crowns of remuneration. Crowns of remuneration, and that is crowns received for work done. And of course, we've received teaching on this throughout our lives and over the years, And there are five distinct crowns mentioned in the New Testament. They're given a name, a crown of such and such, and they really have a theme to each one as well. Can you name one of the crowns that we can possibly be rewarded with in the New Testament? A crown of righteousness. There's one. Crown of life. There's two. Anyone else want to be bold? One starts with G-L-O. Crown of glory. Rick is right, Rick's right on it. Um, okay, we got righteousness, life, and glory. There's another one that starts with R-E-J. Crown of rejoicing. And finally, you put the word before the word crown. It's not crown of, it's something crown, and it begins with I-N-C. Incorruptible crown, the incorruptible crown. And we'll look at each of these individually. But before we do, uh, where do you think we will receive these crowns? Will we receive them here on earth? Of course not. Will we receive them... uh, Periodically throughout eternity? 
Where will we receive crowns if we are so blessed? Where will we receive them? We'll receive them at the judgment seat of Christ, won't we? And so uh, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5. And this is Paul, of course, writing to the Corinthians and exhorting them to, to work. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And let's start at verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are, that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up in life. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore, we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust that I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. So we see here the primary reference to the judgment seat of Christ in the scriptures. And Paul makes his point here in a number of ways. He says here, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And I've been reading uh, reference material in regard to this. And one thing that everyone agrees on is that there is no way out of this meeting, is there? We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. Uh, it would be nice for some of us if we could get out of that. Could we skip that and just get right into my mansion? Could you show me my mansion, please? Could you walk me down the street of gold? I have, I, I, I just, it's going to be very early in eternity. Soon after we breathe our last or soon after the Lord comes, that we will stand before the Lord and we won't have to wait in a line. Because if we did, I'd probably just say, oh, you go ahead. You go ahead. You go ahead. <laughs> no, our Lord is omnipresent, isn't he? And we're going to have a very private audience with that Lord. And it's going to be very candid. And it's going to be very... Uh, we're going to be bare before him, aren't we? 
any excuses we might think about here on earth. Well, you know, Lord, I was so busy. I had so many other responsibilities. There will be no excuses before the Lord, will there? There will stand in a private audience with, the, with our Savior, Jesus Christ. There will stand before him with his wounds visible. And we will give an answer for everything done in the flesh. It'll be there. Some people say there will be a big widescreen TV and your life's going to pass by. No, that's not, that's not going to be the case. But he's going to peer into our hearts and into our minds, into our souls. And we're going to feel it. And through the fire of his judgment, the chaff will be burned away. And laying before us will either be a tiny, tiny fleck of gold or there will be a pile of gold. And no matter how big that pile starts out, when that consuming fire hits it, what's left is going to be a lot less, isn't it? It's either going to be a little fleck or maybe nothing. And it is why Paul says, knowing the terror of God. Not that we need to be terrified of him, but knowing how terrible he is, how powerful he is, how great he is and his wrath against sin. Knowing the terror of God, we work. And it says later in the book of Revelation that all tears will be wiped away. But I believe there will be tears there. That'll be the last of it. Don't worry, there will be no more after that. Because we'll see what this big pile of our life has, has been reduced to when you remove what was done of the flesh. And we'll see what's left. And yet, through the grace of God, through the love of our Savior, that judgment seat is not just to embarrass and shame us and to tear down what we've done wrong. His desire at the judgment seat is to reward us. And ultimately, whether we leave the, his presence with crowns in our hand or none, we're still going to enter into his eternal presence. And you may say to yourself, and I, and I say to myself, I, I desire no crown. I I'm not worthy of anything. I don't want anything. It is not our desire. It is his desire. This God of grace that has given us his son, the Lord Jesus, Desires to show more grace. And if he were to offer you a crown, you would not spurn it. You would not turn it down. And that crown is not for you to wear either, is it? So we'll go on and we'll look at this. You know, the purpose, like I say, the purpose of the, of the judgment seat of Christ is not to knock us down, not to humiliate and humble us, but it is an opportunity for the Lord to refine us, to get rid of what is self and to reward what was done for him. And so there, 
the Lord will finish his audience with us, that private audience, by showing us more grace and giving us a crown if he feels, not if we feel, but if he feels we have earned it. We look at uh, five of the crowns. We'll have to look at each of them briefly because we don't have a lot of time. The first one is found in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, verses 24 through 27. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all? But one receiveth the prize, so run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertain, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep my body and bring it unto subjection, lest that by any means, when I, preach, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. This incorruptible, this incorruptible crown, this is not our salvation. This is an incorruptible crown that Paul strives for. And he strives for it, and I believe it's this incorruptible crown perhaps is our eternal testimony that begins here on earth and follows us to the judgment seat of Christ. This incorruptible crown is something, not that we can lose. It says in the end that, it says here, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. And it, there are other uh, better translations of that word for castaway. That I myself should be worthless, or I myself should be disapproved. You stand before the Lord, and he wants to give you that incorruptible crown. And yet you didn't strive. You didn't fight lawfully. You didn't run lawfully. And you stand before him, and Paul's greatest fear would be that he would be disapproved or found unworthy of that crown. Therefore, he fights. And he doesn't just beat the air but he gives it his all, doesn't he? And what an encouragement to us that in this life, and these other, the other crowns as well will give us encouragement. Crowns for overcoming. But number one is the incorruptible crown, the crown of self-denial, it's been called. Where we give, we give up self and we give all, as Paul did, to win that race. The second crown is the crown of rejoicing. It's in uh, both, both times it's referred to by Paul. It, it begins in uh, Philippians 4, chapter, uh, verse 1. You don't have to turn there. Philippians 4, 1 says, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown. So stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. And then 1 Thessalonians 2, we can turn to that one. 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19 these are the two references to the crown of rejoicing. 1 Thessalonians 2, 19. For what is our hope or joy 
or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. The crown of rejoicing has also been called the soul winner's crown. Each of us, not all of us are gifted as preachers of the gospel, ministers of the gospel, but all of us have the opportunity to preach the gospel in our lives, don't we? Through our walk, through our friends, through our family, our children, our co-workers, kids at school. Our life can be the gospel to them, our words can be the words of the Spirit. And the, the, great, the great joy, it says the crown of rejoicing that Paul had was to look upon his spiritual children, to look upon those in Thessalonica and, and other places where he had gone and he had planted the seed, or where others had planted the seed and he'd gone and watered and he'd seen the fruit. The, tra- the travail of his soul. And how could he not be satisfied? The crown of rejoicing, the soul winner's crown, seeking to go not empty-handed before the Lord. And that was Paul's joy and rejoicing, was to see the fruit of his labors. Ye, says, even ye are they, are our glory and joy. The third crown is the crown of righteousness, 2 Timothy 4, 2 Timothy 4, just a few pages over. Second Timothy 4, the crown of righteousness. It's also called the crown for the love of Christ's return. Second uh, Timothy 4. Uh, let's begin at verse 1. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things. Endure affliction. Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry, for I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure uh, is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing." We'll end there. The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Some say that this is the easiest crown to earn because we can all say that we, we love his appearing. 
And I know that when I, when I was young, I didn't, I didn't long for it much at all. I, I, I hope that the Lord's repairing would, would delay until I could, you know, get through college, you know, I, maybe till I could get married and maybe till I could get to have children. But I'm tired of all that now. You know, 29 years of marriage is plenty. Lord, come, Lord Jesus. I pray that almost daily. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. I long for his appearing, and I'm sure all of us do. This world, I don't know if you noticed or not, but this world is not better than it was five years ago. And five years ago was not better than it was ten years ago. The world is not a great place to live. We look around the globe. We look around our community. And we see that uh, that which was once called wrong is now called right. And that which was called right is now called wrong. And every shade of gray in between is, is fine. Every day we read in the newspapers of what's going on in the Middle East. We read of what's going on throughout the world. And we know that this world is, we're not long for this world, are we? If the Lord doesn't come soon, you know this world's going to destroy itself. The planet is, the planet, it's dying. There's no doubt about it. I don't know if it's fossil fuels, man-made problems, but this world is dying. Deserts are growing at a rate of like 8% per year. This, this world is dying. I'm looking forward to leaving this place. All four of my children are saved. They're all going to go with us. And I know some of you are praying for unsaved relatives, unsaved family. The Lord's been long-suffering, hasn't he? The Lord gives us grace. There's someone here that have been prayed for for years and have gotten saved. The Lord is graceful. We look for his coming. The hope of his coming. Loving his appearing. But if it were as simple as that, that we just say, Lord Jesus, come. I long for your appearing. Then we'd all earn that crown, wouldn't we? But, all, but Paul also made it clear here to Timothy that he's going to go stand before a righteous judge. Paul, it says, my, uh, he, he says, I have... Uh, I am now ready to be offered this. When he wrote this second epistle to Timothy, he was probably on death row at the time. He says, I'm now ready to be offered up. Here's a man that gave his later life. We read his, his accounts of his beatings, his shipwrecks, all the rest. He gave his life. And you know, up until the day that he went before the the executioner. Well, we know from the scriptures that his fellow prisoners were saved. He had pr fellow prisoners were being saved in prison from his teaching there. The Lord used him to the end. We know that the hope of his coming, the longing for his appearing, really equates to a life of righteousness. If we're living a life of gross immorality, of sin, we do not want to see our Savior soon, do we? We do not want to see him soon. We want to hide from him. 
want him to delay his coming till we can clean up our act, right? But a life of longing for the Savior should equate to a life living righteously. And the Apostle Paul knew that though he had, he had stood before unjust judges, both in Rome and in Jerusalem, he would soon stand before the righteous just, the righteous and just judge of eternity, of heaven. And he would receive his crown of righteousness. A challenge for us there. The fourth crown, the crown of life. It's called the crown for enduring trials. The crown of life. Revelation chapter 2 says, Fear none of these things, or, or fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Revelation chapter 2 verse 10. Fear now none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. James chapter 1 verse 12 says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. This is an encouragement This is an encouragement to all of those believers who have lived a life of trial, whether it's through physical infirmity, whether it's through situations, whether it's through the loss of loved ones, the rebellion of young ones. That crown, I believe, I would not ever be eligible for because I've led too far too easy of a life. But there are some in this very room that have led lives that have either been challenged or infirmed through uh, physical ailments or emotional problems or relationship problems, loss of loved ones, It is for them that there is this encouragement. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. First Peter 4 says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, There hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. What beautiful words of encouragement. The word temptation, of course, means, means trials, tribulations, ch- temptations, challenges, hardships that you've gone through, and ultimately, for those that... There are some, some people, you think of the missionaries down to the, to the Alka, you know, Jim Elliott, 
and uh, uh, Fleming and these guys that went down there. Young men had given four or five years of their life learning the language. And, and then they fly in there and they're martyred. They had already dedicated their lives to serve the Lord. They had, they had faithful friends and family that were supporting, praying for them, providing for them. And they went down there. And they lived out there in the rough. And they flew in there. And one sunny, sunny afternoon, they all went home to their Lord. Martyrs for the Lord. Of course, that's the extreme end. Uh, there cannot possibly be a better way to die than to give your life for the Lord. I'm not looking forward to doing that, mind you. But could there possibly be a better way to go? The Apostle Paul, who gave his life every waking hour for the Lord, suffered hardship. We know he, he had physical infirmity as well. We read of his description of his life and the beatings he had taken and the shipwreck and, and so on and so on, the stonings. And then to be cast into a Roman prison. And then finally, his life ended by a Roman executioner. And he rejoices that he would receive that crown. The final crown is the crown of glory. And of course, we, we know that this is the one in uh, 1 Peter 5.15. Uh, it speaks of that crown of glory that is the under-shepherd's crown. It is for those that, that exhort the flock, those that feed the flock, those that tend the flock. Not by constraint, but by a love. Maybe not even a love for the people, but a love for the Savior. That's for the under-shepherds that tend the flock, that feed the flock, that love the flock, that protect the flock. There's a crown laid up for them as well. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5 uh, uh, goes into that as well. So we have in these crowns a challenge for you and I, brothers and sisters. We may think in all humility that we have no desire to have crowns. But we know that the purpose for them is for God to show his grace through his son, the Lord Jesus, in, giving, in adding grace upon grace. Isn't it enough that he's given us eternal life? And how much more that he's given us the opportunity to live in his presence? To be around his throne singing to him, praising him. But, but he wants to give more. He wants to give us crowns. And, of course, we read in the Revelation that those crowns are to be cast at his feet. And when we gather at his feet, some of us will be empty-handed. While we see our brothers and sisters to the left and the right casting their crowns before the Lord and the joy on their face in doing it, we think of the words of the hymn, Shall I go and empty-handed? What a fear. Knowing the terror of God, we persuade men, says Paul. And for that, we want to live a life of righteousness. We want to live a life of self-sacrifice. We want to live a life 
pleasing to the Lord Jesus. We want to get a crown of rejoicing because we've led others to the Lord, that we've shown through our lives and through our words, our examples, the way to the Savior. Not for the crown, but for him that sits upon the throne. You know, we didn't have time, but there's one other crown in Scripture that I didn't mention. And that's the crown that the Lord wore here on earth. There was only one crown for him when he walked this earth. And it was a crown of thorns. And he who bore the thorns on his brow for my sins, for your sins, desires to give us crowns of gold. What a savior. You know, the Lord Jesus, the the creator of the earth, did not create the thorn, did he? He created the plant, but it was sin that brought forth the thorn, wasn't it? When the earth was cursed through Adam's sin, that's when thorns and thistles popped up. And it was the result of that sin that took him to the cross. And it was an example of that sin that was put about his brow. The only crown he ever received on this earth was a crown of mockery. And he desires to give us crowns of glory. What a Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank thee for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, he is the altogether lovely one. There is only one worthy to wear a crown now, Father. And that's him. Him that sits upon the throne. The Lamb of God. Oh, Father, keep... Keep him forever in our eyes, our mind's eyes, in our hearts. As we look to him, we seek to honor him. Father, we know that we will stand before him soon. In a private audience where, where all of our life will be laid bare before him. All of our thoughts, all of our deeds laid bare before him. And the fire of his consuming presence will separate the chaff from the gold. Father, we pray that we would be not ashamed in his presence, but that, Father, we would seek to honor him in a life of righteousness, self-sacrifice, and, Father, of, of living for him. Father, we thank you for him and for his word. We pray in his name. Amen.